Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire. We're podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Very happy to welcome today a very special guest. Um, Josh Schwerin, welcome to Off the Record. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Good. I'm going to tell folks a little bit about you because you are a communications star among Democrats. Uh, Josh is a former press secretary for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, fondly known as the D-Trip. He served as the national spokesman for Hillary Clinton in 2016. He had a lot to say. And now he's the senior strategist and director of communications for Priorities USA. That is the biggest Democratic outside advocacy group and political action committee, one of the key leaders in the drive to elect Joe Biden and Democrats up and down the ticket this November. And if anybody missed the debate the other day, you know how important it is to elect Joe Biden and Democrats up and down the ticket. So first, Josh, congratulations, congratulations, hip, hip, hurrah. I understand that you've just announced some pretty spectacular fundraising numbers for priorities. And for people who haven't heard, can you uh, tell them uh, tell them what you folks have just done and perhaps share a bit what it means in terms of a, a strategic sense for the balance of this race, which is just a little more than a, a month away to at least the first day of the electoral process. And, now you're scaring me about how long this thing could go on. Um, yeah, so we, we had a great third quarter and uh, great September. We raised just under $100 million uh, for the quarter. And to, to put it in perspective, we raised more in September than we raised in the entire third quarter of 2016. So it's, we've all seen the enthusiasm and the record-breaking fundraising numbers from the Biden campaign, and they're raising far more than we are, but it's not just the campaign. Uh, outside groups are doing better, and uh, more importantly, down-ballot Senate candidates and House candidates uh, are, are doing well, um, too. So this is, there, there's broad support, and it makes a huge difference. Um, it's going to let, and we might get to this a little bit more further on, but it's going to let uh, Democrats play in more races in more states than they could have otherwise and keep Republicans on defense. And so we can be spending in the, in the places where we need to to be safe, but we can also stretch the other side pretty thin, give us more opportunities to win and, uh, and keep them on defense. So it's, it's a huge deal. Well, let's so, dive a little bit deeper into um, that battle plan um, can, and what that means in terms of the I, airwaves for, oh, hey, Matt, Paul, you wanna, you wanna jump, yeah, go ahead wanna, and jump in. I'm gonna jump in because, I, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but- No, no. But it's because folks um, probably don't understand what kind of relationship an outside advocacy group like priorities has with the campaign or other advocacy groups. Um, and Josh, maybe you could just give our folks a quick uh, 101 on what Priorities USA is, what it means to be an outside advocacy group. And when you raise $100 million, um, who's in control of it? And uh, who makes decisions about how that's spent in, in, in politics? 
Sure. Um, and so Priorities has a couple different entities, and I will spare you the the, the detailed legal explanation. But the the primary two things that we do is we have a super PAC, um, one of the things that everyone hates, and I think should probably be illegal, but they are what they are. Um, and that's running ads, supporting Joe Biden, um, opposing Donald Trump. We're running digital ads, we're running TV ads in battleground states across the country. We cannot coordinate with the campaign at all. Um, it would be illegal if we said, okay, what do you want us to run ads on or where do you want us to run them? Um, so we just have to figure out on our own what we're gonna do and what our message should be. Um, but we also spend a lot of time on voting rights issues. And it's a, it's a different legal entity, but we have a $34 million budget on voting rights work, which includes a lot of litigation across the country. Um, and that's more important than ever. We've all seen the threats um, that Donald Trump is making and the, the laws that have been enacted across the country to make it harder to vote in person and by mail. So we've spent a lot of time and money focusing on that as well. Um, but to your, to your question about who controls it, we do. We don't answer to um, members of Congress or candidates. We have to, um, we the staff of priorities, look at the data and decide where our money best goes. Um, yeah, so that, well, that's actually, yeah, that's a yeah. perfect lead in actually to, to what I was going to ask, um, yeah. because you really do have your hand on the tiller then of having to make a lot of independent strategic decisions. And I'll tell our listeners that the people who are at priorities like Josh are absolutely some of the best in the business. So, um, you know, these decisions are in very good hands. So why don't we dive a little bit deeper into what your battle plan is for the airwaves for the final month? And of, of course, we're dealing with publicly available information here. Uh, we're not uh, uh, asking you to uh, give away the, the, the store to uh, the opposition, but um, people don't see the whole board the way you do. So um, from what I've seen, and just for context, so the Biden campaign has reserved about a quarter billion dollars in advertising for the next five weeks in 18 swing states. And outside groups like you guys, and you guys are at the, at the forefront, that are supporting Biden have blocked off another about 112 million. That's about a two to one Democratic advantage. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot going up there. What are you targeting in that landscape? Where are you guys looking to really put Trump on defense in a way that might create a breakthrough? And is it outside the big six states um, or is that where the whole ball game is? So I think it's, it's different questions depending on what you're looking at and which groups and, uh, and knowing what everyone's primary goal and role is, is important to, to figure out who's spending where and on what. So for instance, I'll, I'll take my, my organization we, as you said, we have less money than the campaign does now. We used to have more that flipped. That's how it's supposed to work. Um, so we feel like our primary goal, our, our main purpose is do whatever we can to get to 271 total votes. So our, our focus on spending has always been, what are the states that are most likely to represent that 270 total vote? We're going to focus there. So the four states, pretty much from when we started, the four core states were... Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida. And we have been spending in all four of those states since July of 2019 uh, in, in various forms. We've also spent in Arizona uh, and a, a bit in North Carolina, but that's also a Senate, uh, a Senate issue as well. Um, but our, our thinking is it's possible Democrats can win states that are 
beyond that group, uh, we, can, we can win in Iowa, we can win in Ohio, we can put these states in Georgia, we can put these states in play. But if we're winning there, we're probably already past 270 electoral votes. So we feel like our resources are best spent on nailing down the states that get us to the number that gives us a win and not spreading ourselves too thin and making less of an impact on uh, the expansion states. Biden, who has, is raising $300 million a month, hopefully continue to do that, can afford to spend in those core states and they are doing so heavily, but then also spend in states that are a little bit safer. So they can spend in New Hampshire, they can spend in Virginia and Colorado to make sure that we're not in Minnesota, make sure that we're not slipping in places that we won by a little bit last time. But they can also spend in the reach states in the Ohio where, where they're making a big buy right now uh, or in Iowa or they've, they've dabbled in Texas. I don't know how real that is. Um, and that's just because they have this financial advantage. Um, and so it gives them multiple paths to 270. We're looking at what is the most likely way to get there. What is, if you run a thousand different scenarios, it comes up with different paths to, and what's, what's most likely based on polling number of electoral votes and a lot of inputs and we, what are the most likely options we're gonna focus our spending there. But Biden can afford to give him, himself a lot of different ways to get there. So if we don't win one of the states, we can win another one. Trump now has an increasingly narrow focus on his spending. Uh, and it's because he has to, I mean, he has to play defense in these states that um, if he loses one of them, if he loses Florida, if he loses North Carolina, if he loses Ohio or Iowa, it's over. Um, you can, some of those smaller ones you can afford to if you're making gains, but basically he, it was a perfect storm in 2016. He can't afford to lose anything. And so he's spending half of his money right now on states that he won in 2016 and only a quarter of his money on states that uh, Hillary won. Um, and Biden has sort of a reverse uh, flip there. So it's, it's important to look, like we get asked all the time, oh, why aren't you, why aren't you putting your ads up in our state that, to make it, to put it in play? And it's not because we could never, under any circumstances, win those states. It's because if we're doing that, we've already won the election, most likely. So I have a, a question that um, uh, we actually hadn't planned. It's kind of a left field question because we do a lot of planning here on Off the Record because we want to make sure that we're hitting the high points. But my left, left field question is, following the debate, uh, in which it appeared to me that um, the president's Hail Mary was, hey, let's just burn everything down. Uh, I don't care about the process. Elections are rigged. This election is rigged election. I'm dictator for life. Um, I'm going to cast enough doubt on the whole thing and uh, that, that, that everybody will, will that everybody will believe me that it's a fraud. I, I can't. It was just disdain for the process. But in the in the course of expressing that, that whatever it was he was doing, um, commentators and talking heads and pundits are now all uh, running scenario after scenario to try to game out what might happen in terms of legislators taking over electoral votes, members of Congress taking over electoral votes, how many people in a delegation 
get to go to Congress and cast their vote if, if things are really off the wall? What happens if it all comes down and we've got nothing but armed proud boys keeping everybody out of the polls? Um, I mean, the scenario, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's great for the media because it, it, as entertainment, it gives us um, uh, high anxiety entertainment. I'm wondering in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of your process, you're now here we are coming into the last month, you've, you've had a game plan. Um, has your game plan had to shift to accommodate these kinds of possible possible scenarios and in now are you guys staying up at night trying to figure out how likely any of these crazy things are 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 are, are possible and and think about adjustments of course um and i i my current nightmare is is the sort of twofold um on election night headlines or tweets quoting Trump saying either he won or Trump refuses to concede citing voter fraud, neither of which being true at the time and how do we prevent them from that from happening. Um, and the, the second one being Bill Barr sending goons into state secretaries of states and election boards saying stop counting. And I, I don't know how either of those play out. Those are like ter terrifying situations to me. There's, there's only so much that's in our control um, where we're sitting. So we, we do adapt our program as we can. We're, we're planning for the legal side of it. So we absolutely expect that there will be litigation after the election. Um, we don't know and, what it'll be. But and, that'll, and that'll be state by state, right? A lot state of State by state and maybe Supreme Court, right? Right, yeah. Um, and we work very closely with Mark Elias, who's one of the most prominent Democratic elections lawyers. And I know, and he is doing he's involved in more lawsuits than i could possibly um count or know about but uh and then there's a larger group of lawyers that are working with the biden campaign as well so there, there's a lot of planning going on there um and then for our program we've we stood up a, a brand new vote by mail program to adapt to um changing laws and circumstances with the pandemic and um, that's had an increase on getting folks to apply for their ballots early we're encouraging people to vote earlier and in person um, in addition. So we're trying to adapt our program more for the times and the conditions, but there's only so much that we can do from where we're sitting. And I can tell myself only worry about the things that are in your control, but I mean, who am I kidding? I'm gonna sit here and be nervous about this stuff anyway, because I'm a Democrat, but yeah, it's terrifying. Well, listen, on that happy note, uh, this is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. We're talking to Josh Schwerin, um, communications star among Democrats and the senior strategist, director of communications for advocacy group Priorities USA. We've just been talking about his nightmares. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with more Off the Record after this. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. We are produced by WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire, and we're speaking with Josh Warren, who is the uh, Senior Strategist and Director of Communications for Priorities USA, 
um, the biggest Democratic outside advocacy group, political action committee, helping to elect Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and Democrats up and down the ticket. Uh, we ended the last segment with Josh's terrifying nightmares, which I won't, won't repeat for you folks here. You'll have to go back and find it in our archives and read it for yourselves. But, but so I have a, I actually now have a process question, which is a pretty simple one. What is working best these days for you guys? Are you getting most of your impact from television? Most of your impact from digital? Has it evened out? Is one, is one, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're tracking who's looking at what. So what are, what are you finding works best these days? We've always had a, a pretty health of, healthy mix of both the cycle. Um, the, I, I don't know if it's exactly 50-50, but it's getting certainly closer to there um, than it has been in the past. And a lot of it depends on uh, what markets you're trying to talk to, what people you're trying to reach, and what message you're trying to, um, to send them. If you're, I, I mentioned um, we're running a vote by mail program. If you're trying to get people to take a direct action, and you can serve them an ad that has a link in it to go register, not register to, well, you could do register to vote, but in this case, apply for an absentee ballot. That works much better online than it ever would on TV. Uh, and so that program has been for us exclusively online. Um, if you're trying to reach a broader swath of people, TV is still, for a broadcast message, the, the biggest way to, to get to people, um, but not exclusively. Everyone's online. Um, the, the idea that it's only kids online is wrong. Most of our advertising is, is for older people. Um, so it's, it's both. I think the, the danger is you go into one of these programs and you say, okay, we want to, we don't know who we're going to talk to, but we're going to spend 30% of our money on digital. We're going to spend 40% of our budget on TV and 20% on mail. That's not how you should design a program. You should say, okay, who are we trying to talk to? Where are they? How do we meet them where they are? And work back from there. And so I think Democrats have come a long way on this uh, in the last few years. And um, the, the process for creating a budget and figuring out what works uh, has, has adapted to the, the new uh, ways that people get their information. But it's still, it's hard because it's measuring this stuff is, is difficult. Um, I mean, you never hear people say, oh, how do you know your TV ad worked? Like, if people just take it for granted because we've been doing it forever. But then it's, we used to get questions. We get this less than we used to, but does digital work? And you can show them tests and um, online panels and whatever you do, and, and they don't necessarily buy it. Um, but it, I think we take a sort of an all of the above strategy. Um, yeah. And it's mostly just figuring out who you're trying to talk to and how best to get your information in front of them where they already are. If you uh, sorry to, to keep going, but like Google search, for instance, is something that no one ever talks about with ads, but we focus on uh, heavily because you know if someone's looking for, they're Googling about social security and we can be there waiting for them with ads about how Donald Trump has tried to cut social security in every budget he's put forward. We know they wanted that information. It's better than forcing them something they weren't looking for. Um, so we have a lot of that kind of thing in there. And it's just having different, different streams of information trying to reach people in different ways. Well, no problem hearing the uh, detailed uh, dive on some of how you do this. I think uh, getting into that 
that layer of uh, how all this works is uh, a lot of what this show is about. And speaking of which, why don't we talk for a minute about the content of the kind of messages you're sending now. You and I were going back and forth a bit this week about the Supreme Court nomination. Mm -hmm. um, and I argued in an article this week on Alternate that Democrats should engage as little as possible, uh, focus on the nexus of COVID, the dislocation in the economy that COVID has caused, and healthcare and all of Trump's failures around all of those issues um, that has really driven the Democrats' consistent polling advantage across the board, um, and especially for Joe Biden. You had a more nuanced take on that uh, in terms of some of the more targeted messages that Democrats could consider. Um, so what is your take on what Democrats should do over the coming few weeks to handle the Supreme Court nomination? Yeah, I think there's, it's still early. And so the research that has been done is a helpful guide, but it's also take everything with a grain of salt. As this moves, it's going to change. And um, if the most likely scenario and they do confirm, um, they do confirm her, then it changes again 10 days out from the election or whatever it is. So I think you have to be able to plan ahead. And one thing that we are cognizant of is how much do you set up a fight that you're probably going to lose just before the election? Um, now you can flip that around and say, okay, just before the election, there's a good chance that our voters will be really pissed off and something just happened. Um, so that can be a motivational uh, point also. From a message standpoint, I think it's, it's very unlikely that we end up running ads that are exclusively about the Supreme Court. Um, there's, you always look for, okay, is this message better than what we have, better than the best message that we had previously that we're running already? And uh, Matt, to your point, healthcare, coronavirus, uh, the economy, those have been dominating um, people's interests for months now. And, and that's what most of our advertising has been focused on. Now you can use the Supreme Court to, as a data point in those arguments. Uh, so certainly, uh, the, the fact that Donald Trump is putting someone on the court who's going to get rid going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act and going to overturn Roe v. Wade is a compelling point about Donald Trump, right? It's not about the Supreme Court nominee for us. There are other groups that are focused on the nomination itself. So I think it's, it's more likely to show up in our mobilization uh, messaging. So as a way to, to get people out to the polls and less likely to be part of our persuasion messaging. Uh, and if it is, it's more contextual in, in making the healthcare argument, um, or or if you can make it a pandemic argument as well. Um, and then once we get closer, it, it could be a uh, a reason to get angry, a good reason to get angry. I'm already angry. As you fact, should be. Mo most of the people I know are angry. It's a very angry. It's an angry time. I mean, not not to not 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 to take that too far, but. I mean, we, just, we now know that the President of the United States knew in January how bad this was going to be and did nothing about it and actively lied about it. And he's killed people, okay? The President of the United States has killed a lot of people. That ought to be a reason not to reelect him. I mean, that's kind of like, uh, that, that's, that's one good reason. When, the pres when your president kills people in your own country, in general, people get upset. So putting that aside for a moment, 
I'm just yeah, put, yeah. putting that aside. Let's go into the twilight zone. We're going to go step into uh, our way back machine for a moment. So here we are, and we're going to just go back, not to deliver any PTSD to you or our readers. We're going back to the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, and so we're going to, we're, we're not going to be angry about that. Look, losing painful races is, is what happens in politics. I know I've lost a couple and it's painful. And, and it seems like Dems could and should have taken some really valuable lessons learned from the Clinton campaign 2016 that make us stronger now and stronger in the future. And we've learned these lessons well and we're going forward robustly with lessons learned. So what, what did you learn from the Clinton campaign experience? How are you applying it in, in, in this race? How is it applied in 2018? How's it gonna be applied going forward. What were the big takeaways for you guys? Always have two-factor on your email. That's my top takeaway. <laughs> um, look, right. it's, yeah, of course it's painful, but I think one of the, one of the challenges is 26, it was so close that any excuse, any reason that you have or criticism valid or not, you're right. Like, yes that one little thing that you found, that's the reason we lost. It's 70,000 votes over four states, literally anything. And when you're looking, and this is not just about 2016, but when you're looking at winning campaigns and losing campaigns, every winning campaign did some stuff wrong. Almost every losing campaign did some stuff right. There's probably some exceptions there. It's really easy just to say, okay, everything they won, we just have to replicate what they did or they lost, it must've been a mistake. And then if you take the wrong lessons, then you're gonna lose again and you're gonna hurt yourself. And it's knowing what those lessons are uh, is, is important and, and obviously challenging. Um, and you, the fun part about politics is you have one chance to get it right and you don't get a redo. Um, but so I think as we're, trying to, as we tried to figure out how to, how to do this differently, I think there's, we talked about the, there's a shift in how we do digital ads, right? We were spending more online than we did in 2016, but from a message standpoint, it's always connecting it to people's lives. And I think we tried to do that. And certainly Hillary talked about jobs in every speech she gave. And so I think the the talking point of, oh, she should have focused on the economy. Like she, she did try and she did focus on it, she just don't care. But it's also, it's not just that Trump is a bad person and he's going to corrupt your children and do these horrible things. It's, and here's how it hurts you. And that's always been a focus for us is we've spent a lot more time on the kitchen table issues that people already know are true in their lives and connecting Trump's actions to things that they are feeling themselves. So it's less abstract, it's less, I mean, we've all seen the political ads that are like, if this person gets elected, they're going to try to put this plan in that will do this horrible thing in the future. Those can work, we, we, we do them, we're gonna keep doing them, but it's a lot easier to say, Donald Trump already passed a law that made your healthcare more expensive. He already played down the coronavirus that led to thousands more people dying and he made that on tape, right? Like, the, the concrete, here is something that he did. 
here's how it impacts you message, I think for whatever reason didn't work in 2016. And part of it is he hadn't been president, he didn't have a record, right? So there's that, which we couldn't control. But we got to a point where exit polls, and they're exit polls, but they found, I think it was a third of Trump voters thought he was unfit to be president and voted for him anyway. And it's like, so we convinced them. We, we did our job convincing them that he was unfit to be president of the United States. We set out to do that and we succeeded. It didn't win us their votes. So it's like, what is that next step that says, okay, not only is he unfit to be president and anyone who watched the debate or has lived through years of Donald Trump knows that, but how does that hurt me? How does that hurt my country? Why should he not be president? I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind and one that it's not that we didn't know it in 2016, but clearly we didn't succeed at executing it. So it's been a, it's been a core focus for us. You know, I want to pick up on that point about a third of Trump voters in exit polls in 2016 saying he was unfit. Um, and, you know, I'm getting a, I'm getting a signal here um, that we are. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do some, our regular listeners know that Paul is the one who gets up on a soapbox. I'm going to get up on a soapbox for just 45 seconds here and just say, you know, to the earlier part of what you were saying, Josh, you know, I've worked with you. Not that you need any defending here or anyone on the Hillary Clinton campaign does, but I've worked with you. I've worked with Robbie Mook. I've worked with the guy Cecil. I've worked with a lot of the key leaders inside and outside the Clinton campaign. And one simply can't find a smarter, more capable, more diligent set of operatives and professionals in, in, in a campaign than you had on that campaign. And I, I just wanna echo what you said that sometimes in campaigns, you can do everything right and lose. And in a close race, a whole bunch of random stuff is gonna happen. Now we saw that in spades in 2016. Um, so look, after the break, and I know we've got to take one, um, and Paul, you can take us out to that. I wanna, I wanna pick right back up on that one third point um, and, and you know, maybe tease out some of the implications of that um, from a race that you and I worked on together. Um, but let's, uh, Paul, you wanna take us out. You are listening to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL. Uh, we are talking with Josh Schwerin, who is the Senior Strategist, Director of Communications for, for Priorities USA. Say that 12 times fast. And we are going to take a short break. We'll be right back after this. Don't go away, people. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL. We're talking with Josh Schwerin, the Senior Strategist and Director of Communications for Priorities USA, a Democratic Advocacy Group and Political Action Committee working to elect Joe Biden and Democrats up and down the ticket. Welcome back. We were in the midst of a mind ramble from Matt Robeson, a mind ramble and a remembrance. Take it away, Matt Robeson. All right, so when we last left our heroes, we were in 2012. I was managing a race um, for a congressman, a very tough race in a very split district. Josh was uh, my counterpart over at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, helping to uh, uh, guide uh, our communications efforts. And 
we, one of the things we did to eke out a victory in that race, which by the way, we did a million things wrong and right um, and things broke our way. Um, one of the things we did on that race was we employed a nationalized message strategy, including kind of the way we spent our dollars on TV, the way we split it with the DCCC and the way we tied our opponent to national Republicans. It's something that congressional races, Senate races, uh, more localized races are often reluctant to do, especially in tightly contested districts and swing districts. There's a sense, and I've worked for Blue Dog members, Blue Dog Democrats before, there's a sense that, you know, you really got to swing a little bit more conservative, middle of the road. So as our politics get more and more polarized, do you think that more congressional campaigns, more of these kinds of down-ballot campaigns should be looking to nationalize their message, even in close swing districts? Yes and no. Uh, I think, and, and part of this is the nature of campaigns has changed. So if you're a congressional race, you need to be raising money online. And to get people excited for you online, there's no way to do it without being able to tap into some of the national messaging. So in that sense, you have to do it now to, to be relevant. But, and I, I think this is gonna be a little convoluted, but it's sort of nationalizing your local issues in a way, if that makes sense. So if, again, it's making it relevant, you need to make it relevant to your constituents, to your district. And if you just talk about the um, issues that, that your voters don't, think impact their lives, you're not going to win the race. But that doesn't mean you can't take the big national conversation and make it about your, how it impacts you and how it impacts your, your district. Um, and it's also a, people are more and more getting their news from national sources. The local press is dying there. It's harder to differentiate the conversation, but you can differentiate yourself if that makes sense. So we, we used to look for, and, and Paul, I don't know if you ever did this exercise when, uh, when you were running, but it's, you need to be able to answer, how do you, a reporter is going to say, okay, how do you differentiate from the leader of your party or the president of, uh, if you're, if they're in your party? And if you don't have an answer for that question, depending on your district, but certainly in yours, you had to have some answer for that question, right? Um, and my guess is you had thought about that answer before the first time that you got it. Uh, I did. What, what was your answer then? I don't remember, but I remember I was talking about what um, uh, oh one of the one of the issues was, it was around, fiscal stuff. It was, it was fiscal, fiscal stuff. It was fiscal because yeah. New Hampshire is, tends to be a little more fiscally conservative. But also one of the key things that I recall about was uh, at some point in the race it also came uh, to be about uh, leadership in in the party and how I would vote for leadership within the party and that I'd be independent, uh, not necessarily following uh, Nancy's lead. And in fact, it happened uh, exactly that way. Um, not that anybody, I don't know that anybody really cared because they kept trying to tag me as 99.9% .9 Pelosi DNA anyway, uh, but did have to have the answer. Right, and you, and you still need to have that answer, right? It, unless you're, if you're a Trump Republican, you're, you can't answer that question because if you lose any Republican, if you say anything negative about Trump, you're gonna lose all your Republican support, um, which is how we are in this situation right now. But as a Democratic candidate, 
unless you're running in a democratic primary in a deep blue, and then honestly, you're probably gonna differentiate from the left anyway. So in any, any democratic candidate, I'm safe saying, you have to be able to say how you differentiate from the head of your party. But the, the way that you're going to get your voters to care about the election and to give money to you and to support you is tying it into the national conversation, right? You have to be able to do that, but then you have to make that relevant to your district because if you're just going on MSNBC and CNN all the time and just talking about national issues and ignoring your district, you're not going to win there either. So it's, it's sort of, I have not given you a straight answer to this question, but it's, you have to be able to do both, right? Like it's, it is a more national conversation. Voters are much less likely to split their ticket than they used to be for federal offices anyway. And there's no sign that that's getting better. So you have to be able to tap into the national stuff more than, than you did before. When I was uh, working for a Blue Dog member in the house, we didn't let him go on cable TV. I think the, maybe he did one interview in, in his entire term because we thought that would not look good and he should be talking to his, uh, his members. Now you have to, because you have to raise money online. So it's the only way you can do that is if you have a national profile and you tap into these issues. So you certainly have to do it more than you used to, but if you get just caught up in the national stuff, you're not gonna win. Oh, you see, but now that everything's on Zoom, it's become a lot easier because you can create a virtual background and that sends your message, right? So exactly. I, I would have been Zooming from my, from my crummy office in the House Cannon Building and behind me on the Zoom, I'd have the beautiful uh, 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 slopes of Mount Washington behind me. Nobody would know where I am. They'd figure I'm, they'd figure I'm back in the district when, when I'm never there. I think some right. New York City members have tried that and it hasn't worked out for them so well. Yeah, well, they, you know, they tried the plaid jackets and, and the maple syrup too. It, it, it really, it doesn't work. So, so listen, you guys have done some really devastating ads on Trump. Uh, and, but one of, the, one of the really remarkable things, and, and we had John Anzalone on a couple of weeks ago, is, is how stable uh, the race has been. It's been very stable, very consistent. I'd like to uh, at least thank uh, thank the, the gods who are looking down upon us that uh, the, the race so far has been stable in uh, Biden's favor. Uh, that's good news. On the other hand, it's just a little bit concerning that after all the disgusting, insanity, narcissistic, mendacious, sociopathic, uh, violence inciting, race bigoted, dog whistling behavior of the current president, we haven't really made huge advances. We've spent millions and millions of dollars in the Trump rating, his approval ratings about the same. What does that say about political messaging? And are we at a, at a point where the partisanship is simply so strong the, that the that and the tribalism, uh, I I might say the tribal political cannibalism is so strong that 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 people are just resistant that they're going to make up their minds no matter what it is we put out there for political messaging. Do we need a fundamental rethink about the way we are going to message in politics? I mean, probably yes, we probably do, but. I, I think it's more about Donald Trump, honestly. Like the, it is, it's correct. Like the, the race has been very stable. It is amazing that in 
the craziest year of our lifetimes. It's a, actually kind of a boring election. Not much is changing, not much really matters. Every day there's something that people hyperventilate about and frequently for good reason, but it doesn't impact the race. And I think it's because views of Trump are just so solidified. And we've been seeing for a year, like we always look at, everyone looks at favorability, right? But we look at the intensity inside that. So the very unfavorable, the very favorable numbers. And 45% of the country has had un, very unfavorable views of Donald Trump for a really long time. And that doesn't leave much room to, for him to grow. But it's also like basically everyone who can be there in having strong feelings is pretty much there. And then we're going to win because people who agree with him on policy just can't stand him, right? Or there's something about there's one issue and it could, we don't know what it is, but there, one of many issues is the one that put them over the line. But yeah, it's not that much has changed, but everything matters. It's the, it's the volume of everything, right? It's the chaos. It's one thing after another. It's not one thing other than putting, putting the pandemic aside, because I think that could be the one thing, but everything else, it's the sheer volume of all the craziness and all the terribleness. And it's just, People are sick of it, and but it doesn't leave much room for, for wiggle room. And that's not a messaging thing as much as just, this is Donald Trump and he, he's a polarizing figure. Yeah, he does seem to have um, broken the space-time continuum. You know, um, I, I know we're um, wending toward the end of the show here. Let, let's see if we can each get in. All right, we'll each try and get in one more. Um, I wanna go back to something you said earlier about um, Priorities USA has an arm that focuses on, on voter protection. We've already talked about, you alluded earlier to the fact that really Democrats have, I think this is the way I put it in an article like, a, like two months ago, we have to win two battles this year. We have to win the traditional race up to election day. And then there's going to be this post-election period that could be brutal. It could be violent. Um, it, it, could, it could take us to places that the constitution never really considered. Um, are you at Priorities preserving resources not just on the legal protection front, but on the message front um, to try to communicate um, during a period where Trump will surely be trying to sow confusion. And you know, if so, what message are you going to try to carry in that post-election period to make sure that Trump doesn't steal the election? Interesting, it's such an important question and such a hard one to answer. Yes, we will, we are planning for it and it's hard because for budgeting and you've run campaigns, you both run campaigns, you know this, you, you have to spend, you can't leave money left over, right? Like if you lose because you left an extra million dollars in the bank, that was a mistake. And I, this is not to say that we're not budgeting for, for doing this, but it, the balance of we need to play this out through the end and we have to be able to take part in the almost inevitable fight afterwards is a budgeting nightmare, right? So you have to figure that piece out. Um, that said, I think we have seen donors are very much engaged in this race and are going to be engaged in any litigation that happens. So I, I'm not really, and, and messaging efforts that, that happens. And I'm, I'm not concerned that the resources will be there, um, whether it's through us or a different entity um, to, to continue continue that fight or have a runoff election in Georgia, like that kind of thing, the money's going to be there, right? On messaging, it's hard. I mean, it's, I, 
we're in a nice position of the democratic message is every legal vote should count. We want it to be easier for people to be able to vote. We should think if you put your ballot in the mail ahead of the election, it should be able to count no matter if it takes a couple days because Donald Trump slowed down the post office, right? There's, so we are, we're in the, from a PR perspective and a democracy perspective, we're in the, um, we have the benefit of being on the side of good and the side of wanting the American people to speak and, and decide who wins the election. And at every stage, Trump is trying to do the opposite. So I think the messaging piece is now keeping the country calm if Trump sends bad boys into the streets to stir up trouble is harder. But from a PR electoral point of view, I think we have the upper hand. So here's the lightning round as we come uh, quickly to a close, lightning, lightning question, lightning answer. And we're gonna end on a positive note, no more nightmares. When John Anzalone was on the show, I asked him uh, what, what, what was he looking at that was encouraging for nervous Democrats because we're all nervous. So I'll ask you the same thing. What's, what's, what's the top thing you're looking at besides the most obvious top line horse race numbers that make you hopeful about the outcome? The enthusiasm that we're seeing on our side and it, the easiest way to show it is money, but also you're going to see it in early vote numbers. You're going to see it um, in a whole bunch of metrics. And the way that we beat Donald Trump's voter suppression is we just have more people vote, win by more. And I think it's possible. Folks, it's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. We've been talking to Josh Schwerin of Priorities USA. Josh, thank you for joining us and educating our listeners about what goes on deep down in the underbelly of politics. Thanks for having me. It's been a treat. It's been great. Folks, don't go away. It's off the record. We'll be back to wrap up after this. back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL and podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can find all our shows archived at nhtalkradio.com. And uh, man, oh man, Matt, what a smart guy. You know, it, what gives me hope about Democrats is having people like Josh Warren, who are helping to get people like Joe Biden elected. That's what gives me hope. We got, we got smart people. Yeah, I'm really glad our listeners got to hear that. You, you really, I know his title is about strategy, but you actually got to hear from a master tactician um, kind of under the hood of how these things come together. So um, I, I'm, I'm really glad our listeners got that. And remember, folks, please vote one way or another, any way you can, just vote. Vote absentee, vote in person. I'm not going to give you the mayor daily advice about voting early and often. You get to vote once, but make sure you do because it really counts this year. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL. Thanks to the sponsors who keep the station on the air. Thanks to you all for listening. And we'll be back next week with more Off the Record.